Today's lesson is Saul the Delivering King, and we find this lesson in 1 Samuel chapter 11. <clears throat> in response to the people's sinful demand for a king like those of the nations, the Lord raised up and anointed Saul, a Benjamite, as the king over Israel. Yet a public revelation of, of Saul's kingship was met with Saul initially hiding in fear. Still, when the people of Israel saw this man of such impressive physical stature, they proclaimed their loyalty to him. At least most of the people did. Some wicked men despised him. When we next see Saul, however, curiously, we find him once again in an agricultural context, leading a team of oxen. But the Lord was about to change Saul's circumstances significantly. In Scripture and in our lives, God often chooses to work through unexpected sources. These occasions cause us to wonder and question what is going on, which in turn is meant to turn our gaze to the sovereign God behind our circumstances. He's the one who provides all of our needs. He's the one who delivers and saves those who deserve neither. And he's the one worthy of all glory and praise. The first point in this lesson is that God's chosen king unites his people in the face of an enemy. That's 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. Nahash the Ammonite came up and laid siege to Jabesh Gilead. All the men of Jab Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Nahash the Ammonite replied, I'll make one with you on this condition that I gouge out everyone's right eye and humiliate all Israel. Don't do anything to us for seven days. The elders of Jabesh said to him, And let us send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. If no one saves us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah, Saul's hometown, and told the terms to the people, all wept aloud. Just then, Saul was coming in from the field behind his oxen. What's the matter with the people? Why are they weeping? Saul inquired, and they repeated to him the words of the men from Jabesh. When Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God suddenly came powerfully on him, and his anger burned furiously. He took a team of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by messengers who said, This is what we will be done to the ox of anyone who doesn't march behind Saul and Samuel. As a result, the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they went out united. <clears throat> so it's important for us to understand that the Ammonites were a people descended from the incestuous union of Lot and his younger daughter. The Ammonites were located east of the Jordan River, between the Jabbok River to the north and the Hezbon River in the south. The Ammonite capital was the city-state of Rabbah, Rabbah Ammon. Com conflict between the Israelites and Ammonites stretched from the time of the judges to the reign of King David. The leader of the Ammonites, Nahash, whose name meant, means snake, led his forces to besiege the city of Jabesh-Gilead, a small town in Israel on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Desperate, the people of the city begged for a treaty. Nahash offered 
the harsh terms of gouging out everyone's right eye, which would have crippled them in battle in case they tried to revolt, and also would have brought shame to the Israelites who would forever bear the mark of defeat. Amazingly, Nahash agreed to let messengers run throughout Israel seeking help for their city. If no one would help, then the people would surrender. Why would Nahash have allowed the elders to send messengers for help? Perhaps Nahash wanted to pick a fight with the nation of Israel itself. It is possible the pagan leader thought he could conquer the weak leagues of tribes. Or perhaps he knew something about this city's history. Some years earlier, the people of Jabesh-Gilead had failed to heed a call to arms by the tribes of Israel, as recorded in Judges chapter 21. They had done nothing to help in a moment of national crisis. So why would Israel come to the rescue of a city with a reputation for war dodging? Jabez-Gilead is an apt illustration of the state of sinners before coming to faith in Christ for forgiveness and salvation. Not only were we rebels, but we had failed to heed the call to submit to God's word. As Jabez-Gilead sent out their messengers, what hope was there that the Israelites would rally together across their tribal lines to defend this city with a wicked past? And such war was 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 a was a state and such a war was a state of in our sin who was willing to fight for those who hate and despise him but thanks be to god that he is willing and even desires to come to our aid in saving us as sinners only admitting how truly undeserving we are of salvation can we come to experience and appreciate god's amazing grace when the messengers reached out um uh, to, to Gibeah, Saul's hometown, about 40 miles to Gibeah Gilead's west, everyone began to weep. But when Saul heard of what was taking place, the Spirit of God rushed upon him, empowering him, empowering him, as he had done with the likes of Gideon and Samson. This judge king was about to straighten things out in the power of God. In his righteous anger, Saul cut up the oxen he had just used for plowing and sent their butchered parts throughout the tribes of Israel as a warning to every man who would not assemble for battle. Apparently, the people heard Saul's message loud and clear, for they came together as one people in the fear of the Lord. There's a significant history behind Jabesh Gilead's request for help being answered by Gibeah. As Judges 19 to 21 records, a great wickedness occurred in Gibeah, which included a neglect of hospitality, homosexuality, gang rape of a visitor's concubine, and her murder by a number of Benjamite men in the city. In response, the visitor, a Levite, cut up the body of his dead concubine and sent pieces of her corpse throughout the tribes of Israel. Another bloody call to arms. This resulted in a war. All the other tribes against the tribe of Benjamin, who refused to punish the wicked men in Gibeah, and instead sought to defend them. In the end, only 600 Benjamite males survived. Then it was discovered that no one from Jabesh-Gilead had answered the call to war. So the people of that city also were killed, with the exception of 400 virgins who had become wives for the remaining Benjamites.
so the tribe could survive. Saul was a descendant from the remnants of these two wicked cities. God took an unqualified man from a twisted town with a wicked history, and by the power of the Spirit raised him up to lead Israel to save the people of Jabesh Gilead. It's important to remember that no matter the heritage or history of a person, God still sits on the throne of the universe, and he can use whomever he chooses to accomplish his purposes. The city of Jabesh Gilead may not have deserved Israel's help, but the Lord describes himself as compassionate and gracious, a God willing to and desiring to save the undeserving. So through the Spirit of God, Saul would demonstrate the Lord's grace and justice at Jabesh Gilead. God's chosen king secures victory over an enemy is the second point. And this is in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 8 through 11. Saul counted them at Bezek. There were 300,000 Israelites and 30,000 men from Judah. He told the messengers who had come, tell, these to the, tell this to the men of Jabesh Gilead. Deliverance will be yours tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. So the messengers told the men of Jabesh and they rejoiced. Then, then the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Tomorrow we will come out and you can do whatever you want to us. The next day Saul organized the troops into three divisions. During the morning watch they invaded the Ammonite camp and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. There were survivors, but they were so scattered that no two of them were left together. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, Grace had been shown to an undeserving city, and a victory had been secured for God's people over their enemy. This experience left an impression on Saul, who in turn showed mercy to those who had opposed him. But as we see, Saul had assembled his forces at Bezek, a town on the western side of the Jordan River, and about 15 miles from Jabesh Gilead. In response to Saul's bloody summons, 300,000 soldiers from the northern tribes and 30,000 from the southern tribe heeded the call to arms. Seeing his force in place, Saul sent messengers to inform the citizens of Jabesh Gilead that deliverance was coming and would be theirs by midday. In other words, Saul and his forces would not waste any time in rescuing their fellow countrymen from Nahash's grasp. Of course, when the people of Jabesh Gilead heard the news from the messengers, they rejoiced but not so loud as to give away Saul's plans. In fact, in a bit of cunning, the men of the town informed Nahash that they would surrender the next day, at which time Nahash's forces could do with them as they pleased. No doubt this relaxed the Ammonite army. No need to be defensive when your enemies are about to surrender and no one is supposed to be coming to their aid. Just as Saul promised, Israel attacked during the morning watch, and routed the Ammonites. The defeat was so thorough that there, were, that there were survivors. They were so scattered as to be completely isolated from one another. In other words, the battle was a total victory for Israel. Therefore, the people had no doubt that Saul was indeed their king, like those of other nations. He had gone out before them and fought their battle with success. Saul is something of a paradox in the scriptures. He was physically impressive and, well and a well-to-do young man. Yet, when the time came for recognition, 
He was nowhere to be found because he was hiding in fear among the baggage. But when he received word that his countrymen were under attack, he was roused to anger and led Israel to defeat their enemy. In addition, the place where an unspeakable atrocity took place, Gibeah, became the launch pad of Israel's rescue mission. Why does God use the unlikely and undeserving? Once again, we are confronted with the reality of God's sovereign rule. Though human beings have really respons- have real responsibility for their choices, God is going to accomplish his plans as the Lord prophesied through Isaiah. Remember this and be brave. Take it to heart, you transgressors. Remember what happened long ago. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning, and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, My plan will take place, and I will do all my will. I call a bird of prey from the east, a man for my purpose from a far country. Yes, I have spoken, so I will also bring it about. I have planned it. I will also do it. Listen to me, you hard-hearted, far removed from justice. I am bringing my justice near, it is not far away, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, my splendor in Israel. That's Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 13. Whether by many or by few, the righteous or the wicked, God will accomplish his plans for his glory. Saul may have been the instrument of Israel's deliverance, but he was not the source Despite their rebellion against their true king, the Lord worked salvation for his people once again. And in doing so, we today are confronted with the reality of the Lord's amazing mercy and grace. The third point in this lesson is that God's chosen king extends mercy after victory. We find this in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 12-15. through 15. Afterward, the people said to Samuel, Who said that Saul should not reign over us? Give us those men so we can kill them. But Saul ordered, No one will be executed this day, for today the Lord has provided deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let's go to Gilgal, so we can renew the kingship there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there in the Lord's presence they made Saul king. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence, and Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. It's important for us to know that fellowship offerings were made as acts of thankfulness to God. The individual making the offering would slaughter an unblemished lamb, goat, cow, or even a bull. The priest would then burn specific internal organs of the animal and sprinkle its blood around the altar. Part of the animal's meat was given to the priest, while the rest was returned to the offerer of the sacrifice to be eaten in a celebratory meal. Without a doubt, we see here that Saul had proven himself to be just what the people of Israel wanted. However, some of Saul's loyalists saw the victory as an opportunity to silence the men who previously despised Saul's appointment as king. But even Saul recognized to some extent that the victory was the Lord's. With appropriate humility, Saul directed all accolades to the Lord and realized he was in no place to execute judgment when he himself did not bring about the victory. This was not a time for vengeance, but for celebration. 
Thus Saul extended mercy to his distractors. We see here a bit of what the atonement of Christ on the cross really means for us. Both as recipients of mercy, as a follower of Christ, Saul spared the lives of the worthless and wicked men who spoke out against him because the Lord had provided salvation and victory for his people. In spite of the wickedness of cities and critics, God saved sinners, which led Saul to reflect with the same mercy and grace as he spoke for the protection of those who had positioned themselves against him. Likewise, those who had received salvation from sin by faith in Jesus should be eager to extend mercy and forgiveness to others. Following the victory, Samuel led the people to Gilgal to renew the kingship. If we understood the event in chapter 10, where Saul was selected as king as election day, then we would see the renewal of the kingship in Gilgal as possibly the coronation day. Up to this point, then, Saul had been something of a king-elect, so to speak. Saul was made king in the Lord's presence because he was God's choice as king and was to serve more as a governor under the Lord's jurisdiction than as an independent sovereign. And the people sacrificed fellowship offerings and rejoiced before the Lord because he is the only one worthy of worship. Saul was worthy of honor for his position as the anointed king and for his leadership in defending Jabesh-Gilead. But the Lord alone is worthy of all devotion and praise, for he is the creator and the sustainer of everything. Why does God do all that he does? He creates and sustains. He judges and he forgives. He raises up kings. As we will see later, he even tears them down. Why? As the prophet Habakkuk stated, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. That's found in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. Everything exists to point people to God's glory so that he receives the praise that he alone deserves. If God did not do all things for his glory, he would be guilty of idolatry since he alone is glorious and worthy of all praise and the source of eternal joy. So the Lord, through his Spirit, saved an undeserving city with an unlikely Savior until the praise, and to the praise of his own glory. Many years later, God again would save an undeserving people, sinners like you and me, with an unlikely Savior. This time, God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, his Son, would come as a human being and take the punishment for our sins on his own shoulders, and the results would be Jesus' exaltation, our submission to him as our eternal king, and glory to God the Father. Commentator John Woodhouse helps to clarify what is at stake in this narrative. He said that the experience of the people of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 11 had the fingerprints of God all over it. It's an experience with which I hope you're familiar though in deeper terms, following the greater victory that has been won for you by Jesus Christ, do you now recognize the wickedness of rejecting him as king? Have you seen that in him God has worked a great salvation, in the light of which you must now live and treat others? 
Come, then, let us go to the cross and there renew the kingdom. How good that is and a cause for great joy. I want to close today with a voice from church history. And this is Andrew Fuller, who lived from 1754 to 1815. He said that for a town or a city, after a long siege, to receive a king is not to believe him to be their special friend, though such he may be, and in the end they mayn't see it, but to lay down their arms, throw open their gates, and come under his government. These remarks are easily applied, and it's no less easy to perceive that every sinner has not only a warrant thus to receive Christ, but that is his great sin if he received him not. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and just thank you for this chapter in 1 Samuel and how you demonstrate the need for the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins, even though we are unworthy of that salvation. We also I lift up everyone who listens to this lesson today, that you would just bless them. You know their needs, and you know particularly what they're going through. And I just pray that you would be with them and guide and direct them today. And I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to guide and illuminate our path this week and help us to see who we could possibly share the loving light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray for those who are sick and hurting today, Lord, that you would just be with them and comfort them and surround them with your full grace and mercy. For it's in Jesus' precious and holy name that I pray. Amen.